Most people view blessings, when you talk about a blessing or receiving a blessing, as something like a gift. You're asking God to give you something. I, I need to be blessed with a car or blessed with a husband or whatever it might be. I remember there was a, a small Italian restaurant that we used to go to a lot in Lynchburg, and we had a lot of church events there. And the owner was very nice. He was not a believer. Uh, or he's not born again anyway, but um, he loved having us there, very nice, very polite, and he would always ask whenever we'd see him, how are you doing, Mike? How can, how can we be praying for you? Whenever we want to try to talk about the gospel, he was very politely not interested, but he would always say, just, just ask the Lord, God bless Mike. That's all I want. God bless Mike. And that's where most people kind of leave it, is they want a blessing from God. It's kind of, I want the scales to be tilted in my favor. I don't mind praying because I don't believe in it, but if I can, you know, influence the universe one way, what, what harm could it do? You know, that's how we think of a blessing. It's dependent on the whims of God. You can't make yourself be blessed. God's got to do it. And that is true. That is certainly one and an important definition of a blessing, of God giving something. It's, it's something that God gives that he might not otherwise give. If everybody receives something, then it, it's a blessing in one sense. But we look at somebody who has something above another person and say, ah, that one is, is blessed. But what we're going to focus on tonight is another aspect, which is that most of God's blessings come as a result of obedience to his commandments. And I'm not speaking of earning God's blessings as if I've done the right things, now God will do this for me, but that the blessings that God has given are in fact his commandments. And if you do what he says, you're going to end up with what people would call a blessed life. And this is in line with what Jesus said in Matthew 7. I'll only read half of this parable. You know it well, I'm sure. Everyone who hears these words of mine, he said, and does them, so you got to do them, you can't just hear them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. So if you're that man and your house survives the hurricane, you'll say, thank you, Lord, for blessing us with safety. And the Lord had, but the way God had blessed you, you might say, was by helping you and teaching you to build your house on the rock. We spend far too much time, I think, bargaining for blessings from God. If you do this, then I'll do that. And if I give you this much percent of my bonus check, then will you give me this? And uh, hopefully mature believers don't do that. But I think when we get desperate, all of us tend to fall into that. But part of the reason we shouldn't do that is because God has already given us the key, I would say, to most of his blessings. Most of the good things in life are not to be gotten by trying to cajole God and wheedle them out of him, but just by doing what he has said and by doing the normal, regular things, you will find that your life is in fact blessed. And this passage of scripture has an incredible emphasis on God's sovereignty, but it ends with a very important instruction regarding the responsibility of everybody who believes in the Lord. You are responsible for your own life. Don't go blaming God for all the failures of your life. And don't go blaming anybody else. But this passage is a, is a call for us all to step up and take what God has offered to us. Where has he offered them to us? Through his commandments. So I'll say as we look at these things, as we look at God's word and the things he's told us to do, let's be blessed. You can be blessed if you will do what God has said. Not to earn his blessings, but by the Lord saying, I've already given you the key. I've already given you the roadmap. Just do this and it will go well for you. 
Long sections tonight, so we'll begin with verses 1 through 7 of chapter 9. And we are, of course, picking up in the middle of Moses' speech, but that's all right. It's a good stopping point. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today, to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord spoke to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness trying to make a point. Are you getting it? For you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. We'll pause there and continue in a moment. We are following a speech from Moses here. There are several speeches in Deuteronomy that are brought together. This one began in chapter 5 and is going to extend to chapter 11. All of it really amounts to the same thing, which is you're about to go into the promised land. You've got to keep the law. And chapters 5 through 11 are general principles. This is where we had the Shema, the Lord your God, the Lord is one, and why they ought to keep the law. And this continues that. And the emphasis of this section here, we've already seen it back in chapter 7, is that it is not because Israel is so righteous that God is blessing them with this victory. Because here's what I'm about to do. I'm about to kick out the Anakim. We've already talked about them. This is another bloodline of the Nephilim, if you want to call them that, these these, uh, abominable creatures that were on the earth. We have even historical records of them in Egypt talking about those who were of Anak, that lived in the promised land. And it was says that they were fearsome warriors and they were taller than others. It fits with the biblical testimony here. But God said, I'm not going to drive them out because you're so great or because you're so righteous. It's very important for, uh, it's a modern day lesson that I'll just leave aside for a minute that many people want to say because Israel has been so wicked and is not serving God now, they cannot be God's chosen people. Well, that was never the reason they were God's chosen people because they were righteous. The opposite of that. He says, I'm driving these people out because they are wicked, not because you're so great. Genesis 15, 16, God had told Abraham, your children will come back into this land after 400 years because the iniquity of the Amorites is not complete yet. Well, now it's complete and now it's time for judgment. They had done nothing with those 400 years of repentance that God had offered to them. And in fact, not only has Israel not been righteous, he says you were stubborn. But I I love the old translation there for verse 6. Stiff-necked. That's just a great image there. A stiff-necked people. A rebellious people. And he says, and you've been that way since you left Egypt until now. 
In fact, even while they were still in Egypt, when Pharaoh increased their workload, they were like, Moses, what'd you come here for? Is this why you came here to make it harder for us? But as we're talking about blessing tonight, here's the first principle we've got to know. If we're talking about how to live a good life and be blessed of the Lord, the first thing to know is that God does not owe you anything. Let's get this out of the way right off the bat. God is not obligated to bless you. He does not owe you anything. Sometimes we can be like Israel was warned against being here. And we think that because our nation is at peace, that's because that we are more righteous than other nations and God loves us more. Or because I have more money than those people over there, it's because God favors me and not them. Or health can be like that. I am healthy because I have more faith than you do. I'll tell you a funny story that is not really funny, but it makes me laugh. Uh, I was at an event one time and there was an an older woman there and um, she was being complimented by the other women at the table, as women tend to do, and uh, said, you look so good at your age. How do you look so good? And she responded by saying, well, you know, the Bible says that, you know, the Lord uh, renews our youth and and we just got to claim these promises in Jesus' name. And I'm sitting there like, wow, okay. Bad theology aside, this woman not only thought she looked so good, she thought she looked so good that God had something to do with it. So, and I was like, and hey, she looked okay, but she didn't look that good. Let's just put it that way. I didn't say that. I was a guest at this event. I'm just saying it now. But I'm like, man, the vanity of that. Can you imagine? And none of y'all here would do that, I hope. But the vanity of thinking the reason I look the way I do that other people would compliment me is because God has given this to me. The rest of y'all, you just don't understand the secret like I do. What is that all about? That is not how God does blessings. You look down on somebody else who doesn't have what you have and think that is because God favors you. How many passages in the Bible are there that teach us that's not how God does things? The whole book of Job, the whole book of Ecclesiastes, the story of David, right? He had seven brothers and he's like, Samuel, I don't look at people the way you do. And let's put it this way. Even if you were really great and doing everything you were supposed to, you still wouldn't earn God's blessings. Here's a great parable that my parents used to love to quote to me when I was in like high school. Luke 17, verses 7 through 10. Jesus says, Will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep, say to him when he comes in from the field, come at once and recline at table. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress me and dress yourself properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterward you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? So you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. This is Jesus talking to those Pharisees, those religious folks. I thought they were earning something. He says, if you've got a servant or or an employee or whatever the relationship might be, your kids, this is how it was applied to my life usually, says, then they're out working in the field and then they come in. You as the master are not going to tell the servant, now let me fix you something. He says, okay, good, you finished in the field. Now it's time to cook for me. And when I'm done, you can eat. He says, if, because if a servant has only done what he's been asked to do, he doesn't get credit for that. 
He says, if you're only doing what you should do, you don't get extra credit. And this is a problem with many, many Christians today. We think that because I come to church and I worship and I tithe, etc., that God must be pleased with me and bless me. Y'all, you're supposed to do those things. This, you don't get credit for that. You don't get extra blessings for doing what is right. Well, Lord, I've, I've never murdered anybody. Where's my prize? God goes, you're not, what? You're not supposed to do that. You're an unprofitable servant. You don't deserve anything extra. That, that entitlement is a serious attitude problem that a lot of people have. I'd have employees that worked for me at my previous job where they'd be late every day. Like, let's say they're late six shifts in a row. And I'll really lay in, you've got to be on time. This is really getting out of hand. They show up on time the next day, and I don't say anything, and they're going to be all pouty and do a bad job on purpose. Like, what is going on with you? I showed up on time. You didn't say anything to me. It's like, you were late six days in a row, and you want me to celebrate the one day you showed up? This is how we treat God sometimes. Yes, Lord, I know that I've lost my temper in traffic eight days in a row, but today I didn't. So you must have a special blessing for me. God goes, uh, no, you just finally hit what you were supposed to be doing. <laughs> Don't we do that, though? We feel we need to be validated for everything we do. It's like, what's the point of cleaning this if I'm not going to post it online for everybody to see it and sing my praises? Like, what's the point of mowing my lawn if my neighbor's not there to feel, you know, feel guilty or feel like I'm better than him about it? We do this. We do things so that other people will see us and tell us we did a good job, when in reality, this is what you're supposed to be doing. God doesn't see it that way. We are small people. We're sinful people. We're set in our ways, and it's hard for us to change. Why would God bless you? Now, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. But this mindset shift is important when we're talking about blessings. You can't show up talking about wanting to be blessed like you deserve blessing. You don't. You're unworthy of blessing. And Moses is going to demonstrate to these children of Israel that you are, in fact, unworthy. I said you don't deserve this. I'm not driving them out because of you. And just in case you doubt me, let's go back to a little history here. Verse 8, and we'll read at the end of the chapter now. Even at Horeb, remember Horeb is the mountainous region where Mount Sinai was found. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights, and neither ate bread nor drank water. And the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. That would be the Ten Commandments. Verse 11, and at the end of 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, arise, go down quickly from here. For your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I have commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone, that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You made yourselves a golden calf, 
You turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, 40 days and 40 nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed and doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. And well, he should have been. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, grinding it very small until it was fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taberah also, and at Massah, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So I lay prostrate before the Lord for these 40 days and 40 nights, because the Lord said he would destroy you. And I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them. And because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. For they are your people and your heritage, whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So Moses is, is proving the point he just made, that you do not deserve the promised land. God's given it to you, but you don't deserve it. And he's reminding them of the golden calf, which you might call the great sin of Israel up until the crucifixion, of course. When he was up on the mountain, which was on fire in theophanic glory, the God had descended on the mountain and up he goes until they said, you know what? Moses has been gone a long time. Let's build a golden God and worship that. And the belief at the time which was false and demonic, was we will create this image and we will worship it and the spirit of the God will come into the, Egypt, to, into the idol and then he will lead us. And they begin to worship this golden calf in orgiastic frenzy. It says that they rose up to play. Just like it says Isaac was laughing with his wife and the, the king saw and that's how he knew they were married, not brother and sister. Same word, they tzachak, they rose up to play. It was a sexual orgy in honor of the most high God. And it very much incurred the wrath of God against them. You read Exodus 32, go back and look it up, listen to our Bible studies. They major big time failed. And verse 22 reminds us of other failures they had. We've read all those stories up till now. Squabbles over food, squabbles over water, squabbles over leadership, the promised land and their failure to enter into it. And Moses is saying, the only reason y'all are still here is because I prayed for you. I stood in the gap 40 days and 40 nights. That's called P-U-S-H, pray until something happens. That's how long it took. Only God's covenant grace, only God's love that he still held for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob preserved them up to that point. Therefore, what right did they have to expect blessings from God as a reward 
Oh, but Lord, over the last three months, we've been doing real good. And Moses is like, y'all have been rebellious since the day I met you. So don't talk to me over the last three months. Likewise, hope you're following me here. God does not owe you blessings. But in fact, as sinners, we deserve the opposite. Not only do we not deserve blessings, we deserve judgment. You can look back in your own life, and I hope none of you have ever bowed down and worshipped a golden image, but you can probably look back and see a couple moments in your life that just you wish you could forget. Moments of great sin in your life where you shocked yourself and you couldn't believe that you had done that. Uh, whether it was a great lie or a great uh, sexual sin like the children of Israel or whether it was a blasphemy against the Lord or who knows. And you look back on that and you say, wow, that, that still haunts me to this day. It's been decades and I still think about that. That might be your golden calf moment. And you might say, well, I've, I've done much better since then. Yes, but aren't the same things that brought that out of you still in you? You might have learned to deal with them a little better, but don't you still have those impulses? If you've left behind some, some terrible sin, perhaps you've left behind drugs or alcohol, you know every now and then, even though you don't respond to them, you still have those urges. You still have that desire. You still have the lust to go back to it. And you say no, which is good. You should, but it's still in you. That's the point. Sin doesn't come at you. It comes out of you, as I often say. And that is what deserves judgment in hell. That lust, that rage in your heart, that sloth and gluttony in your life, pride, it deserves judgment. And you might say, I don't think little sins deserve judgment. Well, what does Jesus say? Matthew 5, 22, Jesus said, I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Small sin, big sin, it all comes from the same place. And that's what God judges, not so much the individual things themselves as the heart that brings them about. So rather than feeling entitled to blessings, we ought to worry more about what we actually deserve. The children of Israel thinking, God's going to get rid of these people because we are the real righteous ones. And Moses goes, no, you're not. <laughs> remember, remember the golden calf? Remember Masa? Remember all of these things? Kadesh Barnea? You don't deserve any of this. In fact, you deserve to be wiped out and judged. And once again, I'm not trying to make you feel bad. God has given us grace for salvation just as he had given the children of Israel grace to go into the promised land. But it's grace. It's a gift. It's free. You must never think that you were saved because of your own merit. That's something you did because two things. Number one, you'll get prideful and you'll boast and you'll think, ah, God saved me because, I mean, well, look at me. I'm wonderful. Why wouldn't he save me? Or number two, if all of a sudden your merit doesn't measure up to where it did, you're going to start to panic and think your salvation's in jeopardy. And that's not something God has planned for you either. So this is the first principle that we've outlined in this first chapter. Talking about blessing, you don't deserve it. You deserve the opposite. So let's get all that entitlement out of the way when we approach God. And maybe for some of you, it frees you up a little bit because you think, okay, well, if I can't earn it, I know that I haven't, so maybe I should stop worrying about that so much. I agree. Let's get now into chapter 10. And we're going to say, okay, so what, what is to be done then?
first 11 verses here. At that time, the Lord said to me, so he's continuing the story, cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first and come up to me on the mountain and make an ark of wood. Moses is jumping around here in the chronology of the story. That's fine. He's a preacher. We do that sometimes. And I will write on the tablets, verse two, the words that were on the first tablets that you broke and you shall put them in the ark. So I made an ark of acacia wood and cut two tablets of stone like the first and went up the mountain with the two tablets in my hand. And he wrote on the tablets in the same writing as before, the 10 commandments, literally the 10 words that the Lord had spoken to you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And the Lord gave them to me. What a moment. Then I turned and came down from the mountain and put the tablets in the ark that I had made. And there they are as the Lord commanded me. The people of Israel journeyed from Berot ben Yakan to Mosera. There Aaron died and there he was buried. We know Aaron was buried on Mount Hor. So Mosera seems to be the region or the mountain range in which you can find Mount Hor. And his son Eleazar ministered as priest in his place. From there they journeyed to Gudgodah. And from Gudgadah to Yatbathah, a land with brooks of water. At that time, the Lord set apart the tribe of Levi to carry the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, to stand before the Lord, to minister to him, and to bless in his name to this day. Therefore, Levi has no portion or inheritance with his brothers, meaning in the land of Israel. They had cities, but not territory. The Lord is his inheritance, as the Lord your God said to him. I myself stayed on the mountain as at the first time, 40 days and 40 nights, and the Lord listened to me that time also. The Lord was unwilling to destroy you. And the Lord said to me, Arise, go on your journey at the head of the people, so that they may go in and possess the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. I'll just say in passing, without getting into each one of them, some of the details of the story here read a little different than they do in the book of Exodus. For example, it says Moses built an ark to hold the tablets. Uh, we know from Exodus that it was Bezalel, remember, who designed the implements of the, of the tabernacle and that were then constructed. Uh, some people think maybe Bezalel didn't actually make this ark. Maybe he just embellished it. Uh, some people think that Moses made one and then they were moved into this ark of the covenant that was made later. That seems fine to me. Uh, some of the locations here uh, are tough to precisely identify. I think we can just trust that Moses knew the geography of this land better than we do right now. Uh, so I'm not going to really focus on that. Just to say it's nothing for you to worry about. This is just the kind of passage that uh, secularists love to grab onto and say, well, which was it? Was it Moserah or was it Mount Hor? It's like it could have been both. You don't know. And since we don't know, we're just going to trust that Lord knows what he's talking about. The emphasis of this whole section is that despite all this stuff, God decided in his sovereign grace not to judge them. And the means of the mercy that he was to give them was the law. This is key to understanding our point tonight. God decided to show mercy to them. And the mercy that he gave them, first of all, was not judging them, but he also gave them his law. The law given to Moses was part of God's blessing. It was part of the answer to their prayers. And as we've said many times, there were several reasons for the law. And in context, we can see a few of them. First of all, the law was to be a constant reminder to the people that they did not deserve the blessings God had freely given them. Because every time they looked at those Ten Commandments, where it said, thou shalt not covet, oh well, broke that one. It's a reminder. 
God is holy. You are not. You don't deserve these blessings, and yet you are blessed. So your salvation and your hope of eternity does not depend upon your merit, but upon God's grace. It was a constant reproach to the people, reminding them you're not going to find favor with God in your works. You're only going to find it in God's mercy. It was to be a cultural preparation for the Messiah, who, of course, is Jesus. Paul explains it in Galatians 3, verse 24. The law was our guardian. You could even translate that our tutor, our instructor, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So the law was God's constant reminder to the people, you don't measure up, but hey, look, I've blessed you anyway. So your blessing is not dependent upon you, it's dependent upon me. So when you think of matters like heaven and hell and life and death, maybe don't look to yourself, look to me. And then as they learned this lesson when God sent Jesus, they would be theologically ready for it. They weren't, but they should have been. But not only that, that's, that's a big and perhaps the most important thing. But there's another thing here in which God was showing them mercy. Grace and mercy from God does not just consist of salvation, but it consists of the blessings of wisdom and a good life as revealed in his law. God goes, I'm going to give you these blessings. You don't deserve them. But how are you to receive them? I'm going to show you how to live a blessed life. Being, having a blessed life is not about dancing around and asking God to send rain. It's about obeying his commandments. And as you obey them, your life will be better. God says, I'm going to teach you how to live a good life. Here's the book. How many times have you heard people say, well, there's no instruction manual for life. Yeah, there is. It's called the Bible. It's instructions not just for afterlife, but for right now. God says, I'm going to tell you what's right. I'm going to tell you what's good. So you don't have to have a bunch of eggheads in the university trying to figure it out. I'm just going to tell you what's right. And I know you can't measure up to it, but even in your own limited sinful capacity, as much as you are able to keep this law, shall you be blessed. Not because I'm going to reward you, but because this is just how life works. The more you do what I say, the better it will go for you. How was unworthy Israel to receive the blessings of God? By taking heed according to the word of God. It's the same for you and me. It's not like magic where, you know, you, you've got to do a rain dance, two steps to the right, two steps back, and one to the left. Now blessing will come. It's more like the Lord saying, would you like to have a good marriage? Don't cheat on your wife. Is that magic? No, that's just wisdom. And you don't have to earn it. God says, here you go. Here's a big book of wisdom for you. Live that way and it will go well for you. That's grace and mercy too, isn't it? That's, that's grace and mercy for right now. Showing us the best way to live life rather than having to figure it out for yourself. Verse 12. This is this section that we're about to read right here is, is perhaps one of my favorites in the book of Deuteronomy, and it, it probably deserved its own message, but we're just going to use it for part of tonight. Verses 12 through 22. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord which I am commanding you today for your good. 
Those are some verses worth memorizing. Behold, to the Lord your God belong heaven and the heaven of heavens, the earth with all that is in it. Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them, you above all peoples as you are this day. Circumcise therefore the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who is not partial and takes no bribe. He executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve him and hold fast to him, and by his name you shall swear. He is your praise. He is your God who has done for you these great and terrifying things that your eyes have seen. Your fathers went down to Egypt, 70 persons, and now the Lord your God has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. Isn't that a beautiful section of scripture? He's, he's imploring them by calling out on who God is and what God has done just to obey the Lord. Knowing everything that Moses had said, that they had been rebellious, but God had chosen to save them, that God had given them this law as an act of mercy, first of all, as an act of mercy across salvation history, but then an act of mercy for each individual life. Moses says, so do what it says. Keep the law. Obey the law. Because it's for their good. Now, when you read verse 12 there, when it says, what does the Lord your God require of you? You probably are familiar with a quotation of this verse that we find in Micah chapter 6, verse 8. What does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love mercy and walk humbly with your God? Micah, the prophet, was quoting the book of Deuteronomy there. He's using language. What does the Lord your God require of you? Because he's saying you've got to keep the law and you can get all intimidated. But Moses is going, but what is it really he wants? And he gives us five things there. Let me read them again. Fear the Lord your God. Walk in all his ways. Love him. Serve him with all your heart and soul. And keep his commandments and statutes, which are for your good anyway. It basically means let God be your God. Not in any kind of weird, tricky 21st century sense. Worship God as God. Serve him as your God. Love him. Have affection for him and serve him well. Do what he says because his commandments are for your good. And he says, circumcise the foreskins of your heart. He's saying, don't just do the rituals. Don't just be part of the group. Have a heart relationship with me. This is why in the New Testament, Paul will say things like circumcision or non-circumcision don't count for anything. Your heart is what matters. Jesus was not innovating in the things he said. He was calling them back to the heart of what God had always said. That it's not about the rituals, it's about your heart. It's not about, to use a very famous dichotomy we put forth, it's not about religion, it's about relationship. In fact, true religion is relationship with the Lord. All of religion comes alive when you have a relationship with the Lord. I don't like separating the two because it, it can lead to some other problems, but I think you get the point. He wants us to be all in. The Lord goes, I want to bless you, but I want you to move beyond this, this relationship we have of just fishing for my blessings. Just trying to find out what do I need to do to get stuff from God, be it heaven 
right? Be it escape from hell, be it a good life, be it money or health. God goes, I want to give you all those things, but let's move past that to a real relationship between God and man, committed to God. And the best way that we can be committed to God, as he said, and as he begins to lay out, is to keep his word. Oh, I love Jesus, but I'm not into all those commandments. What? Jesus said in John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And I've heard somebody say things like, there's a band that I, I like, that I like less now as I've realized more what these lyrics mean. They're, they're coming at Jesus and saying, how can you say it's real love if obedience is involved? Because God isn't your boyfriend, he's your God. That's the answer to that. It's not a relationship like you have with anybody else. It's a different, in fact, it's a unique kind of relationship. It is one of love, but it's love that consists of obedience. Every relationship involves dying to yourself, right? People want to say things, it's just ridiculous. I'm not going to bother to defend it, but when people say like, well, marriages shouldn't require people to be faithful because why would you limit another person? That's what marriage is. I love you so much, I'm willing to say no to everybody else. If you can't recognize why that's compelling, you are an incredibly immature person. I apologize, but not really. <laughs> Somebody that cannot recognize the value of marriage has not thought about it long enough. This is how our relationship with God functions. Not like anything else. Obedience to the Lord. Not just being on God's team. Not just being, oh, I'm very pro-Christian. Okay, great. Lots of people throughout history have been pro-Christian and yet not Christian. We keep God's ways out of love because we love him. I want to do whatever God says because he rescued me from hell, man. Not just hell someday, but the hell of my own life apart from him. He brought me out of that. Why would I want to quibble about what he asks of me? But not only that, but God's commandments are for my good. Living God's way is a blessing in itself. We reap the benefits of God's wisdom. God made the world. He knows how it works. God made people. He knows how they work. So when he says, do it this way, you should trust him. Proverbs chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. And whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly and she will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. Solomon loved to compare wisdom to a woman because he's writing to his son. He's like, the woman you want more than anything else. And Solomon knew a thing or two about getting women. He had a few. Wisdom above all else. He says, if you keep the right, wisdom is the right way of living, right? It's a good life. He says, if you do it, it'll make your life better. And we have God's wisdom here. God's word is powerful in that it changes us. It changes things, right? It's living, Hebrews 4.12. But it's also just wise. It's smart. It's a good way to live. You ever read through the instructions of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and go, yeah, that's, that's pretty smart. Or you open up the book of Proverbs and you read it. It's like, that is, that is good advice when it tells me not to co-sign for an idiot. <laughs> that's in the Bible. It tells you not to do that. It says, you can do it if you want to, but you're a fool. 
It's like, yeah, well, I guess the Bible knows what it's talking about. Living God's way is the way to a blessed life. This is the point. We don't deserve blessings, but the greatest blessing we have is God's word. Not just as a relic, not just for that reason, but because it tells you how to live good. God just tells us how to live life. And many people resent that idea because we don't want there to be any consequences for our actions. We want to be able to live however we want and still be blessed. Sorry, folks, it doesn't work that way. I think the clearest example you see of this, at least in our culture, is how we deal with sex. I want to be able to sleep with whoever I want, however I want, whenever I want, with no consequences. And anytime anybody comes along and says, well, there's going to be some consequences, they get yelled at and shouted down. First of all, there's emotional consequences, right? People are saying things like, I, don't, I just don't understand why... I, these people broke up with me after we slept together. It's like, well, I thought you just wanted to do whatever, right? And just kind of have no consequences. Well, it should be. Well, you just said it was breaking your heart. Well, I don't want to have to change, though. I still want the option to be sexually gratified whenever I want, but I don't want to have to have any kind of emotional attachment. So we go around trying to break people's conditioning, as they say, to attachment in sex. Or we say, uh, I want to be able to have sex without having any, ch any children. Okay, but that is the procreative act, my friend. This is how babies are made. Well, we can, we can take birth control. All right, fine. Doesn't always work, though. Well, then what are you going to do? Well, I, can I get rid of the baby? No, that's immoral. Are you telling me I can't live my life however I want? Yes! Yes! There are consequences to actions. When you do the baby-making thing, babies will happen. When you do it with a lot of people, you're going to get sick and you're going to get attached and you're going to become numb and it's not going to feel like it did before. That's how it works. You can rail and rant about it all you want. But when God said, save it for marriage and keep it in the family, okay, that, that's the best way to do it. One person. Well, what if we're not compatible? If you don't ever have sex with anybody else, you won't know anything else. Well, that's, that's so limiting. Yes. Yes, it is. God thinks you are valuable enough to only belong to one person your whole life. And that's the ideal way to do it, but nobody does that anymore. Yeah, no one does it anymore. And how are we doing? How are things looking? How's the outlook? It's not great, is it? I'll tell you, when my wife and I were uh, engaged and we were, you know, looking forward to getting married and we had several people that we really loved, good godly people, honestly, godly people, take us aside and say, hey, we know how difficult it is to maintain your purity during the engagement period because you're so excited and it's so close and all the temptations go through. They say, don't compromise. You'll regret it for the rest of your life. And we look back on that and like, these are people that are godly, that are married, but they still look back on that as one of their greatest regrets. That's one of their golden calf moments that they look back on. And there's always going to have that, that, that taint for them. And there's grace and there's forgiveness for all those things. But it's just a reminder, the way God said it was the right way to do it. And I mean, look at how he's, he talks about the sojourner here. God says, I'm the God that takes care of the fatherless and the widow. And the sojourner, we might say the illegal alien. God goes, love those people because you know what it's like to be those people. How about we just do that? It was like, well, if everybody took care of the people that couldn't take care of themselves, well, I mean, everybody would be taken care of and nobody would be getting bitter towards anybody else and everybody, that's a pretty good way to live and structure your society. 
Well, how about that? God knew what he was doing. You can apply this however you want. Apply this to lying. The Bible says don't lie. Isn't it better when you don't lie? Mark Twain said, don't lie. Then you don't have to remember anything. <laughs> but sloth, the Bible says, go to the ant, thou sluggard. I'll always remember that in the KJV translations. Perfect. Look at the ants. Even these little ants get up and make their anthills and carry things. You can get out of bed. You can get to work. Isn't, when you work hard, isn't your life better? Isn't it just better that way? If you don't steal things, isn't it better? One of the big problems when you go to a third world country, like in Uganda, for example, we just were, which, I mean, the country's really on the come up, but you drive around and they'll say, oh, look, somebody stole the power lines. It's like if people don't have this, this, no, this regular biblical understanding that you don't take things that aren't yours, it's like the rest of us are going to be held down. If you, don't, if you can't assume that the person at the store is going to tell you the right price, or if you can't assume that the person at the DMV is telling you what the law is, and I've suspected that perhaps it's not what I've been getting sometimes at the DMV before, we take those things so for granted. Don't steal. Don't take things that aren't yours. It's a better way to live. Or unforgiveness. Always cracks me up that some psychologist or philosopher writes some new treatise every couple years on how we have to forgive each other. It's better for you. Really? You're just catching up to this, man? God's ways are better. God's ways are blessings. Say, how can I have a marriage like yours? What's the secret? Do what God said. I don't want to do that. Well, he's not just going to hand you something. He's already told you how to do it. Man, it seems like everybody is so, just loves being around you, and everybody really wants to be with you. How do you do that? Well, I'm kind. Well, nuts to that. I guess people aren't going to like me anymore. The Lord has told us to be kind and to be loving, right? It's better to do things God's way. So we're talking about blessings, right? You don't deserve blessings, but God has given you one, his word that tells you how to live. And if you live God's way, friends, it's gonna be better for you. God's ways are blessings. They're not burdens. Chapter 11 now, verses one through 17. You shall therefore, so all those things we just learned about God, you shall therefore, Love the Lord your God and keep his charge, his statutes, his rules, and his commandments always. And consider today, since I'm not speaking to your children who have not known or seen it, consider the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his mighty hand and his outstretched arm, his signs and his deeds that he did in Egypt to Pharaoh the king of Egypt and to all his land, what he did to the army of Egypt, to their horses and to their chariots, how he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued after you and how the Lord has destroyed them to this day, and what he did to you in the wilderness until you came to this place, what he did to Dathan and to Byram, the sons of Eliab, son of Reuben, how the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households, their tents, and every living thing that followed them in the midst of all Israel. For your eyes have seen all the great work of the Lord that he did. You shall therefore keep the whole commandment that I command you today, that you may be strong and go in and take possession of the land that you are going over to possess, and that you may live long in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give to them and to their offspring, a land flowing with milk and honey. For the land that you are entering to take possession of it is not like the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land that you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven, a land that the Lord your God cares for. 
The eyes of the Lord your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. And if you will indeed obey my commandments that I command you today to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul, he will give the rain for your land in its season, the early rain and the later rain, that you may gather in your grain and your wine and your oil, and he will give grass in your fields for your livestock, and you shall eat and be full. Take care lest your heart be deceived and you turn aside and serve other gods and worship them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain and the land will yield no fruit and you will perish quickly off the good land that the Lord is giving you. So the Lord, he's continuing to tell them the story. He reminds them of the judgment that was upon the Egyptians, of the rebels in the wilderness, Dathan and Abiram, and there were others, Korah. And he says, you're entering a world that is not like Egypt. Egypt is the kind of place where rain doesn't come. They have the floods. You have to irrigate the crops. He says, Egypt, you get the fruit by the sweat of your brow. He says, the promised land is not like that. It is dependent upon rain from heaven. So you're not going to be able to do this one yourself. You need me. So obey me. They need God. And in this last chapter here, we've learned that, all right, we don't deserve blessings. The way that we are blessed is by serving the Lord and keeping his commandments. We're going to end with two reasons, two motivations that ought to cause you to obey the Lord. And the first is a negative one. It's the fear of judgment. Why should I keep the Lord's commandments? Fear of judgment. God is real. God is not just an ideal that we postulate into the sky. He's a real person. He cares about how you act. Why would God care about me? Because your actions corrupt the world. You have ripple effects that go to everybody around you. Now, you maybe are not like a Genghis Khan who's conquering countries and devastating whole regions. But what about your own family? What have you done to your parents or to your children or to your spouse or ex-spouse? What kind of devastation have you wrought there? How about in your neighborhood? You know one person can really make a neighborhood a bad place to be, can't they? And the Lord sees that. Well, that's petty. God doesn't care. It's petty until you multiply it by 8 billion. And then you have the world. It stacks on itself. It builds. God cares. It's not blessing or nothing, guys. It's blessing or judgment. You should fear the Lord. Fear God's wrath. It's real. Nahum chapter 1, verse 3. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. Meaning God's got a long fuse, but when that bomb goes off, you better not be around it. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is in whirlwind and storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. If the Lord has told us the right way to live, that if you live this way, it's gonna go well for you, what do you think will happen if you do the opposite? It's not gonna be good for you. It's not going to go well. Consider people who leave the church. Happens every day, unfortunately. Sometimes very publicly. I'm done. I'm not, not following Jesus anymore. I'm leaving. How does it go for them? You ever seen somebody be like, I left the church. I'm so glad I did. Things have just gone great for me since then. I've never seen it. We always imagine that it's out there. I've never seen it. I've seen people turn miserable and bitter and wreck their families, and ruin their relationships with their children, and their their husbands, and their wives. It doesn't work. 
Their lives get ravaged. So look at your life then. If you, as you consider, how am I going to live? How could everything in your life go terribly wrong? Just look at the, the things of your life. How could it go wrong? Oh, that's kind of morbid thinking. No, it's wise thinking. How could it go bad? I mean, the Lord is telling them, I'm going to shut up the rain. You're not going to have any rain in this land that needs rain to survive. Look at yourself. Pick the commandments of the Lord. How could things go badly for me if I start lying? How could things go badly for me if I start indulging in sexual immorality or gluttony or sloth? How will it go for me? Let the possibility, the real possibility of pain and failure keep you from chasing after your own way. Haven't you found that most of the time when we say, I'm going to do things my way, where it's always some like 13-year-old dream, it's never something that you've grown into and matured as an adult. It's always something you wanted when you were a kid and now you didn't get it. You still got that little petulant teenager in your heart somewhere that wants something. I didn't get to sleep with as many people as they did on TV. I never got to be that famous rock star that I always wanted. I never got to make as much money as I always wanted. These adolescent dreams, all right, but how could it all go terribly wrong? Because that's what will happen if you abandon the Lord. Verse 18 now. That's the, that's the negative motivation. We're going to see the positive one here. You shall therefore lay up these words of mine in your heart and in your soul, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall teach them to your children, talking of them when you are sitting in your house, when you're walking by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates, that your days and the days of your children may be multiplied in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers to give them, as long as the heavens are above the earth. He's repeating some of what he said in chapter 6. For if you will be careful to do all this commandment that I command you to do, loving the Lord your God, walking in all his ways and holding fast to him, then the Lord will drive out all these nations before you and you will dispossess nations greater and mightier than you. Every place on which the sole of your foot treads shall be yours. Your territory shall be from the wilderness to the Lebanon and from the river, the river Euphrates to the western sea. No one shall be able to stand against you. The Lord your God will lay the fear of you and the dread of you on all the land that you shall tread as he promised you. Moses again is urging them, don't just do these things. Teach them to your kids. Don't just serve God. You've got to teach your kids to serve God so that you can taste the blessings that come from obedience. God gives blessings by fiat, just by declaration. Most of his blessings come through obeying the word he's given us. And he outlines this vast stretch of territory from the river to the sea that will belong to Israel if they will obey him. That territory was only attained during the reigns of David and Solomon, and then it was promptly ripped apart. This is our second reason to obey the Lord. First was a negative reason. Right? How could it go wrong? Fear the Lord, fear his judgment. Here's the second motivation, the hope of his favor. The positive side. God honors those who honor him. And also, his word is just the best way to live. If you live that way, it's going to go good for you. Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. 
and on his law he meditates day and night. He's like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. How would you like all that you do to prosper? I want that. Okay. Well, there's a whole strain of teachers in the church called prosperity teachers. And they teach all sorts of weird what amount to incantations in order to get blessings from God. Nobody ever wants to talk about the one place in the Bible that says, here's how you prosper. By keeping and meditating on the law of the Lord. Do what he says. It'll be better for you. How many times do I have to say it? When you obey God, you will see the benefits accrue. Not just internally as guilt falls away and shame goes away because you're not doing shameful things. But the blessings will grow because God goes, here's the best way to live. And you do it and you go, wow, he was right. When I tell the truth, I make more friends. When I don't lose my temper, I am happier throughout the day. When I don't cheat on my husband, we do have a better relationship with each other. Those who obey the Lord are blessed. And when we say that and we acknowledge that because it's indisputable, here's where Satan comes in and goes, yeah, but what a boring way to live. You ever see that movie, The Emperor's New Groove? You got the angel and the devil on his shoulder and the devil goes, he's trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. I'm going to lead you down the path that rocks. (laughs) And we laugh, but isn't that exactly what the devil does? He doesn't give us reason. Yeah, but it'll be cool. It'll be fun. It'll feel good. What a stupid reason to do something. It feels good. That's what children do. That's why you find your your kid like licking the window and stuff like that. (laughs) It was cold on my tongue. It's like, well, don't lick the window. (laughs) How could your life, let's do the opposite now. We said, how could it go terribly wrong? Man, if you kept the Lord's commandments, how could it go so great? How could it just get better? Just think of your life for a minute. What if you stopped lying? Man, wouldn't that be better? Not to have to be remembering who you lied to and covering things up and hoping you can get to enough time that you finally can tell the truth because it's so far in the past they can't really be upset about it anymore. Wouldn't that be nice? Wouldn't it be great if you stopped watching pornography? Just wouldn't your life be better? Like, oh, I wouldn't have to feel shameful all the time. We'd get along better. It would be better that way. Wouldn't it be better to stop being gluttonous and overindulging with food? Because don't you feel bad about it every time anyway? How would you like to say, wow, I don't have to worry about this anymore. Things are just better. What if you got up early every single day and worked hard all day long? How would your life be better? How would you like to just bank a couple years of that and get the blessings now? You'd, you'd love that, wouldn't you? Well, why not just do it? I can't give you the time part, but I can, I can have you get started now. Wouldn't it be better if your life was in obedience to the Lord? Exactly what commandment has God given us that will not make our lives better? There isn't one. They're all good. They're all for our benefit. You should get excited about what your life could be. Say, I want to be blessed. Then do what he says. Turn the other cheek. Spend time in God's word. Love your neighbor as yourself. These things will benefit you. If you obey everything he taught us, your life will get better. You'll be blessed. That's what God has told us to do. Verse 26. Some of y'all might be thinking, well, really, this isn't up to me. It's up to God. Well, let's read what he says. 
See, I am setting before you today a blessing and a curse. The blessing, if you obey the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you today, and the curse, if you do not obey the commandments of the Lord your God, but turn aside from the way that I am commanding you today to go after other gods that you have not known. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it, you shall set the blessing on Mount Gerizim and the curse on Mount Ebal. He's giving them a ritual to enact when the conquest is over. Are they not beyond the Jordan, west of the road, toward the going down of the sun in the land of the Canaanites who live in the Arabah, opposite Gilgal, beside the oak of Moreh? I'll have to take your word for it, Moses. Verse 31, for you are to cross over the Jordan to go in to take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And when you possess it and live in it, you shall be careful to do all the statutes and the rules that I'm setting before you today. This setting before you blessing and curse is going to be repeated and expanded in chapters 27 and 28. And this ceremony with Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal will be completed, if you care to read ahead, in Joshua chapter 8. What's this lesson? What's the whole point of everything I'm making today? Yes, God is sovereign. Yes, God shows grace. Yes, God is the one who saves us. But you have a choice to make. Your life is in your hands. Your decisions are real decisions. And how you live is going to affect how it goes. You can't escape that. Galatians 6, 7, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. What does it mean to mock God? It means to live like hell and show up to church and say, God, bring heaven into my life. God's like, are you mocking me? You think I'm a chump? You think I'm some kind of loser? You can come and push around like that? No, you're going to get exactly what you deserve. And I'm not talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about right now. Talking about in this life. Would you like your life to be hard and troublesome and miserable? Then by all means, keep on sinning. But don't blame God when it goes bad. Why would God do this to me? God goes, I've been waving red flags at you all along the way, and you got all ticked off at Tyler for talking about it, and now you've made your bed, you're going to lie in it. I'll be with you, but you still made it. But if you want a blessed and happy life, don't buy another book on the right prayers to pray. Submit and obey the Lord's word. Do what he says. One of the hardest things to do for a person is to accept that my life is my fault. There are people who make buku dollars telling people that your life is not your fault. It's a whole industry. But that is the case. Your life is your fault. Someone's got to tell you. I'll tell you. Your life is your fault. All of it? No. Most of it, though. And the longer you live, more of it becomes your fault. Stop crying out for special blessings. Now, I don't want to say that. I want to say stop. It's okay to ask for special blessings. But make sure that you're not neglecting where most of them come from, which is through obedience to his word. God goes, I'm setting out. Do you want curses or blessings? Oh, I want blessings. Okay, then obey my word. Oh, I knew there was a catch. No, man, that's just how life works. And I'm going to say this one more time to make sure it's very clear. It's not that if you obey God, he'll send magic blessings your way. It's that God's ways are good. And when you do them, life gets good. And sometimes God sends blessings your way because he loves you. Pursue the blessings he's already promised you. And I guarantee you they will come. Of course, ultimately, as much as he tells us to keep God's law, none of us can keep it perfectly. 
And that's why it's good for us to remember at the end that God has saved us by his grace. This is an in-house, in-family discussion about life in the promised land. We're only in this place because Jesus died for all our sins and gave us salvation freely. For the wages of sin is death. What you deserve is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is something you could not and you don't have to earn, but you can receive salvation by faith alone this very day. Then God's commandments come alive and the Holy Spirit fills you and enables you to obey day by day. And there will be many blessings in your life like salvation that God just grants out of his kindness. But most of them will come as you walk in his ways, as you walk close beside him, and as you find the life that he's always planned for you. It's in your hands. God put it there and gave you his Holy Spirit to make it possible. So friends, let's be blessed. It's up to you. Make the decision to follow the Lord because he's already made the decision to bless you if you do.